Uh, Father, we thank you for, for calling us here today to worship you. Uh, we know that you've called us to, to give honor to whom honor is due. And so today we thank you for, for the mothers that are here. Uh, we pray that today you would encourage them, uh, remind them of, of their worth in you, refresh them in your presence. And as we open your word here, we pray that we would hear words from your son promising us your spirit. And we pray that that would refresh our faith, that it would refresh our confidence that you're with us that you'd help us to know you more because of what we see here and that we would hear from your spirit as we talk about your spirit this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those of you who haven't been with us for the last bunch of weeks, we've been walking through the Apostles' Creed. And um, this is an ancient statement of faith that, that Christians of all stripes have held on to. Uh, the Apostles' Creed is not a replacement for the Bible, but it's more of an answer to the question, what do you believe the Bible teaches? And, and while this creed has kind of gone out of fashion in a lot of ways, creeds definitely have not. Um, you can drive down most of our neighborhoods and see secular creeds on lawn signs that say, in this house, we believe. People still believe things. They still have beliefs about unseen realities. People are still very spiritual. Um, you can read a lot today about the rise of the nuns. Uh, the nuns are like that rapidly growing category of people that are religiously unaffiliated they don't see themselves as connected to any one faith tradition. And, and that is a quickly growing number. In 2007, 15% of all Americans called themselves religiously unaffiliated. In 2007, 15% of everyone said that they were nuns. Today, that percentage is about 25%, and it's 40% of people under the age of 30. And so, so we look at that and we think, well, people are just rapidly becoming not spiritual. But the truth is, in our country, only about 7% of all people call themselves atheists or agnostics. And just because the unaffiliated don't consider themselves to be part of any denomination doesn't mean that they don't have spiritual beliefs and practices. In fact, among those nuns, among the unaffiliated, 46% of them say that they pray. 55% say they believe in a higher power. Most of them call themselves spiritual, but not religious. And so in our day, it's not that people have ceased to be religious or that they've ceased to believe in anything beyond themselves. It's just that they've switched from a bounded, established set of beliefs that were handed down to them, and they've started to do what one author calls remixing the faith. They experiment with beliefs. They mix beliefs from various different traditions. Um, they treat beliefs a little bit like consumer products that they can shop for. They treat themselves as creators of truth rather than the discoverers of truth. And, and truth is treated almost like any other content on the internet. And what often happens is the, these new and less defined faiths will still contain a lot of elements of Christianity, but then they'll mix in other beliefs. But what's even more surprising is that Christians who do see themselves as affiliated with the religious tradition also have mixtures of beliefs that are actually really similar to the beliefs among the nuns. The faith that many Christians have is indistinguishable from that mix and match set of beliefs that the nuns have. So, so for example, 47% of the nuns believe that spiritual energy can be located in physical things. 37% of people affiliated with the Christian church believe that. 40% of the unaffiliated believe in psychics so do 40% of Christians. 32% of the unaffiliated believe in astrology, but so do 26% of Christians. 38% of the unaffiliated believe in reincarnation, and so do 29% of professed Christians. 
And so what's happening across our, our culture, both inside and outside the church, is that people have come to mix and match faiths and assemble for themselves their own systems of religious beliefs. So while it's true that people have very quickly changed to where they, they now say that they're unaffiliated, they now identify themselves with the nuns, but the truth is their beliefs haven't changed that much from when they were affiliated with a religion. So people mix and match faiths, and, and those people used to go to church, but now they don't go to church as much anymore, but this is just kind of a, an American practice of, of finding a whole bunch of different truths, shop for the ones we like, and adopting those. And it happens here, and it happens out there. But this is one of the reasons we're walking through the Apostles' Creed, because Christians believe that God has revealed himself to us. And in the Bible, we're presented with truths to believe about God and about life. We're presented with lies to avoid. We're presented with a total alternative to like the mix and match belief system that exists both inside and outside the church. Christians believe that God has revealed specific things about himself that are true, and we don't derive truth from our feelings. We don't derive truth from our impressions, but from God's revelation. We believe that God's revealed himself to us, the, and, and he's revealed to us the way to be forgiven and accepted by God in Jesus. We believe that God's revealed to us a morality, a right and a wrong, and that we don't get to choose those truths like we would food off of a buffet. But this idea that we don't get to make up spiritual truth is almost surprising. Because in, in our day, as much as we have better access than ever to the Bible and to the history of, of Christian teaching, we're still living in a day of rampant biblical illiteracy. Uh, Tara Isabella Burton wrote a book called Strange Rights that kind of assesses the new spirituality of people in our day. And she says that more households know the four Harry Potter houses than the four Gospels. And, and this is not a shot at Harry Potter, but there's something to be said that these cultural artifacts and their stories are more formative to us than Scripture is. A culture is formed in large part by the stories that we tell, and we're no longer as familiar with the biblical story as we used to be. And so, so we're going back to anchor ourselves by walking through this ancient creed, this truth that's been handed down through generations of Christianity. And so far we've said that the creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And today we're going to focus on the next line that says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And there's probably no doctrine that's been subject to this, I'll make it whatever I want it to be idea, than the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. If we're going to mix and match our faith, the, the teaching about the Holy Spirit is a prime area for us to do it, whether we're inside the church or outside the church. And so we can associate the Holy Spirit with mystical states that we enter. We can treat the Holy Spirit like the person of the Godhead that kind of gets you high. Or we might confuse the Holy Spirit with like a new age spirit guide that guides you into deeper realities or, or with the collective consciousness of the universe. We can even assume that the Holy Spirit is just the same as that voice inside our heads that tells us to do right and to avoid doing wrong. And so when we mix and match our belief system, this idea of a spirit can be so nebulous that it kind of lends itself to, to us making it whatever we want it to be. 
And then I think what, what doesn't help is that the most read English translation translated the word spirit as ghost. And so, so that brings with it all kinds of popular myths about what, what ghosts are that we start to associate with the spirit. And so it's important for us to go straight to the source of what Christians believe about the spirit by going to the scriptures and specifically a section where Jesus taught about that spirit in John 14. Um, in this passage, this is known as Jesus's farewell discourse. Uh, Jesus is about to go to the cross and John focuses in here on the last hours of Jesus's life before he's crucified, before he dies, he's buried and he rises again. He's with the disciples for, for one of the last times before he goes to the cross. So these are really important moments. And this is what Jesus says in John 14, starting in verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid." So Jesus says to his disciples, I won't be with you forever, but I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to leave you someone who will. Jesus is about to depart, but he says he's not going to leave his followers as orphans with no God present. He's leaving them with the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, he says, I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. And that word for another there is the Greek word alas. There are two Greek words for another. One is heteros. Um, it, it forms words like heterodox, which means another of a different type. So if you talk about something that's heterodox, you're saying it's, it's a doctrine of a different type. It's a, a doctrine that doesn't conform with orthodoxy. It's a, a different kind of doctrine. But this word that Jesus uses here is the word alas, which means another of the same type. So when he describes the spirit, he describes the spirit as another of the same type of Jesus. And so if you're eating an orange and I say, would you like another, you would expect me to bring you another orange. If, if you're eating an orange and I say, would you like another, and then I bring you an apple, you would say, well, that's not another. And I say, well, it's another of a, of a different type. But that's not the another you expected. And, and so what Jesus is saying here is that the spirit is another of the same type as him. When Jesus sends his spirit, he's sending someone else who's like him, the same type as Jesus. So in many ways, the spirit is very much like Jesus. So how is that? I think one important way is that the Holy Spirit is a person. Now, when we say that the spirit is a person, we're definitely not saying that he's a human being. He's not. But we're saying that he's conscious and he has a conscious existence. 
He has personality. He thinks. He has a mind. He has knowledge. He has feelings. He acts volitionally. He's, he's not an impersonal force or an energy field. So, so let's make sure, as much as we love listening to all the popular stories in our culture, let's make sure that we don't get the Holy Spirit confused with the force in Star Wars. The Holy Spirit is not an energy field created by all living things that surrounds and penetrates living beings and binds the galaxy together. That, that's not the definition of him. That's the definition of, of the force. The Spirit is not a vibe. He's not some kind of like static electricity. He's a person. And that's why when we're, we're speaking about him the right way, we're referring to the Spirit as a he, not an it. You say, yeah, but isn't there like some language used that makes him sound like an impersonal force? Doesn't Jesus describe him as a wind? And, and he does. In John 3, 8, he says that the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. So it does seem there like Jesus is kind of describing him like a wind. But Jesus wasn't using the wind analogy to say that he's like wind in every way. It's really important that analogies are meant to drive home usually one main point, and analogies always break down because no analogy is perfect in every way. And in this context here in John 3, Jesus is saying that the Spirit of God can't be controlled. He's not saying that he's like a wind in every way. He's not saying that the Spirit's caused by temperature and pressure differentials. He's, he's saying you can't control him just like you can't control the wind. It's really only in our day that people have even started talking about making efforts to control the wind or to control the weather. Like we're, we're starting to think that maybe we can do that, but certainly when Jesus was walking the earth, that would never cross anyone's mind. Wind was just the, the definition of something that you couldn't control. And so Jesus here, when he talks about the spirit and says that he's like a wind, he's saying that the spirit can't be manipulated. He can't be guided. And I think this is really important because sometimes we'll treat the Holy Spirit as the person of the Godhead that we can control. We think that if we manipulate the feelings in the room just right, then the Spirit will show up. We do this in a lot of ways. Preachers like me, we'll do it by slowly escalating, escalating the emotion and, and preaching until finally the emotions are aroused to just the right point and people will say that's definitely the Spirit showing up. We can do it with sound and lights and music. It's almost like the spirit is waiting in his green room and when we get the production just right, then he's going to enter the room and we'll know that he's here because we finally nailed it on the guitar. And I know it's true that, that not everyone who does music and lights and emotional preaching is trying to control the spirit at all. There are a lot of faithful people who do that. But in some circles, sometimes we can have the idea that we make the spirit show up by our work and our production. That if you get the service just right, then you can make the Holy Spirit show. But the whole point of Jesus saying that the Spirit's like a wind is saying that he can't be controlled. That's how he's like a wind. We can't control him. We also know that he's personal because you see, see passages in the Bible where the Spirit is grieved, where he's saddened by behavior. So that's not just a force. That's not just electricity. That's not just energy. That's a person. Wind doesn't get sad in that way, but the Spirit does. You see passages in Scripture where the Spirit says specific things, and forces of nature don't do that. In Scripture, you see the Spirit inspiring the Scripture, which is rich and it's personal. And so the Spirit is a person, just like Jesus is a person. He's another of the same type as Jesus in that regard. 
And also by saying that he can't be controlled by people, Jesus is hinting at another way that the Spirit is another of the same type as him, and that the Holy Spirit is God. As Christians, we believe in the Trinity. We believe that that God has always existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. That, That all three are persons of the Godhead, They've always been around. They're all equal. They, they will all exist as three persons of the Godhead eternally. And the Holy Spirit is one of those three persons of the Godhead. So the Holy Spirit's not just an angel. He's not just God's messenger. He is God himself. He's no less God than the Father, no less God than the Son. He, he is God. And there are tons of passages that demonstrate this. Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. We won't look at it now, but in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit, and he's also said to lie to God. So to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. In 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 6.19, Christians are called the temples of God, but then also called the temples of the Holy Spirit. They're used interchangeably. So the Holy Spirit is God. He's another of the same type as Jesus. Jesus is God, the Spirit is God, and the Father is God. So the Spirit's a person, he's God. And then also, just as Jesus was present with his followers, the Spirit's present with us today. In verse 17 again, Jesus said that the Spirit would be close to the disciples just like Jesus was. He said, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So Jesus knows that that he doesn't have much more time with his disciples before his crucifixion. He has a mission to accomplish. He's going to go to that cross. He'll be crucified. He'll die. He'll descend to the dead. He'll rise again. And then he gets 40 days with the disciples after that before he ascends back to the Father's right hand. But Jesus says here that his closeness with his disciples, that the closeness of God with the disciples won't be diminished at all when Jesus is in heaven. This is, a, this is a huge statement for us. Because how often do we think, if I could just get in the time machine and go back and hang out with Jesus, that would build my faith so much. I'd be able to like see those miracles. I'd be able to talk to the man himself. I'd be able to get clarification on those hard things. I'd be able to get my questions answered. I'd be able to sit at his feet and have him teach me. But what Jesus says here means that we have the same capability to build our faith with the spirit with us as those disciples would have had when they were walking with Jesus in person and hanging out with him on the boat on the Sea of Galilee. In John 16, verse 7, Jesus will say, Nevertheless, I tell you, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he says it's an advantage. It's an advantage that we have the Holy Spirit with us and in us over what the disciples had when they were hanging out with Jesus in person. Now, certainly, it requires more faith today. We can't put our fingers into the holes of the hands of the Spirit like Thomas did because Jesus was the one who had those hands. But still, Jesus said we have it better. The work that the Spirit's doing among us to build our faith and to strengthen us does more than even being in the presence of Jesus in the flesh would do. 
That's how real God's presence is with us. That's how real the Spirit is. He's really with you in the Spirit. And this is huge when you're going through trial because you can tell other people about your trouble, and, and hopefully you do. Like, hopefully there are people around you that will come when you call them. Hopefully you're building community and friendships like that so that there are other people who will know when you're struggling, who will be there for you, who, who will help you through situations. But the truth is that even if you have the most supportive people possible around you, most of our big trials can feel very isolating because those people aren't omnipresent. Like, they can't be there every moment. They're not all-knowing. They don't always know the right things to say. Even the best human comforters just end up coming up short. And sometimes what can happen is we can get really judgmental of the people who, who didn't do enough for us in our trial, who didn't call enough, who didn't care enough, who didn't notice when we were down. But sometimes we're putting an expectation on people that really should just be the expectation that we put on the Spirit of God. We expect people to be fully and perfectly present with us, but that's an attribute of the Holy Spirit. And certainly, the Spirit uses those people, and again, call those people. We need those people, but we can't expect them to be all the things for us that only God can be. And even though it might sound cliche, the truth is, you're never by yourself in a trial because the Spirit of God is really with you. It's not just that God's thoughts are with you. It's not just that someday in the future you'll be with God and this will be done. He's really with you now. So reach out to friends in trials. I hope you're cultivating the, the Christian friendships that you can reach out to. But understand that they can't be for you what only the Spirit can be. Receive from them any comfort they can bring into your life, but know that what they bring into your life is only part of what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. Be thankful for that place that they, they play in your life, but don't put those expectations on them that can crush them. So the Holy Spirit is God. He's personal. He's really present with us. And so what does he do when he's with us? Well, according to verse 26, he points us to Jesus and teaches us the teachings of Jesus. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Sometimes we think, man, the only way I could ever get clarity on some of these questions I have would be if I sat at the feet of Jesus and heard directly from Jesus. We can get that same clarity because of the teaching work of the Holy Spirit today. Having the Holy Spirit with us teaching us is as good as sitting at the feet of Jesus because he's just as much God as Jesus is. But now as we say this, it's, it's important that we don't divorce the idea that the Spirit teaches us from the idea that the Bible teaches us. This is important. This is, there's a really unfortunate split in our day between people who emphasize the Spirit and people who emphasize the Bible. You see this kind of across evangelical Christianity. Uh, when I, I went to Bible college, I went in Springfield, Missouri, to um, a small school, Baptist Bible College, and it was very much uh, a Bible college. We were into the Bible. And now Springfield, Missouri is in, in the heart of the Bible Belt. Everyone there says it's the buckle of the Bible Belt, but I think that every large town in the Bible Belt says it's the buckle of the Bible Belt, so there may not be a belt. It might just be a whole series of buckles that, that run across the country, but 
across town, there was, there was another college, um, and it was the, the, there were a couple, there was Central Bible College, which was the Assemblies of God school, and that was a much more charismatic school than the one that we went to. And, and so my school was very big on Bible. We're learning the Bible, we're, we're learning the truths of what it has to say, and then over there, they were really big on the Holy Spirit. And from our perspective, uh, we looked at the way that they lived and the way that w- they thought, and we kind of had this idea that, that they weren't that serious about the Bible because they were so into the Holy Spirit. They know how to have a good time. They're a lot more fun over there than we are over here, but, but we got Bible and we've got truth over here. And so we had this idea that it was almost like Bible versus spirit, truth versus joy. And there was actually a pocket of students who lived on my campus who would go over to that other campus to try to evangelize those people because there is no way that people who are having that much fun could be Christians. And so that was like the, the idea. And so we have this idea that, that you divorce Bible from spirit and almost like you've got to choose. But man, as you go through scripture and you go through church history, there was a strong knowledge that the Bible was given by the Holy Spirit. Origen wrote that the Bible is written by the Holy Spirit. Calvin stressed the union of the word and the spirit, and he told people, don't expect something new from the spirit, but expect to have the spirit illuminate and impress the truth of the word on you. And the Bible joins it together. 1 Peter 1.21 says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 6.17 says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. It's in the Scripture that he teaches us. He teaches us through these words that he inspired. He takes those Spirit-inspired words on the page and he impresses them onto our hearts. He helps us understand those things. And as the Holy Spirit leads us and teaches us, he never contradicts the words that he gave us in Scripture. He brings these same words to remembrance. He's personal, and he works to teach us, and he teaches us the definitions and the meanings of the words that he wrote. He's almost like the college professor who also wrote the textbook and uses the textbook that he wrote to teach us the truth. And because the Spirit is present to teach us, we can expect to learn from him in the Scripture. I mean, even if you are a brand-new Christian, you can ask, Spirit, teach me as I read your word. You can learn, and it won't depend primarily on your intellect or your education. It doesn't necessarily depend on how long you've been reading and studying. The Spirit is there to teach you these things. Now, again, when we say this, you might think that, well, if the Spirit shows up to, like, teach me as I'm reading the Bible, I'll feel the electricity. There'll be some way that I know the whole room will shake. Probably not. Sometimes you will be deeply moved as you read the Bible. Other times, less so. But I think it's good for all of us to see our time reading the Bible almost like our time eating food. That the word of God will nourish you. The spirit will use it to nourish you even when it doesn't move you, even when it's not spectacular. Sometimes you have the amazing dinner and it is spectacular and moving and you tell your friends about it and you Instagram it because this is so good. Other times it's mac and cheese which feeds you. 
It's something. It, it gives you the calories you need. It keeps you going. It gives you some nourishment. And there are a lot of times as we're reading through the Bible that, that we are getting the food, but not the spectacle. But don't be afraid of, of food without spectacle. Allow yourself to be nourished regularly by the word of God. Allow the spirit to teach you over the course of a lifetime as he feeds you his word. But at the same time, we don't treat the Bible just like an academic book. I mean, we prayerfully rely on the Spirit as we read it. Because we know that you can learn the facts of the Bible, you can learn true things from the Bible, but be completely unchanged by them. And this was the Pharisees. These guys had doctor's degrees in the Bible, but because they just learned the facts and they weren't taught by the Spirit, they didn't know anything. Jesus sits with Nicodemus and he says, are you a teacher of Israel? And still you don't get this stuff. All the seminary in the world doesn't help if we're not taught by the Spirit. But the Spirit and the Word are closely connected. Now because the Spirit inspired his, his Word, that also means that the Holy Spirit is not the stamp that I can use on anything I want to do. Sometimes we think listening to the Holy Spirit just means going with our gut. Like listening to our emotions, and then we say, well, you know, God told me to do this. His Spirit did it. But the Spirit doesn't lead us contrary to his word. So regardless of what your feelings are telling you, the Spirit's not leading you to lie in that situation. The Spirit's not leading you toward an illicit relationship. The Spirit's not leading you to leave your spouse for another Believing in the Holy Spirit is different from like pantheism and all these like effervescent approaches to spiritual things. There are things we know that the Spirit wills and does not will, and we know it from the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We don't get to create what the Spirit does and doesn't do. We don't get to make up what the Spirit says and doesn't say. We go to his Word for wisdom, prayerfully depending on his Spirit, and we know that he'll teach us the true things that those words say. I think this is an important word for mothers, that, that there's such a, a responsibility on mothers to build your home on the truth of God's word, to build a home on the presence of the Holy Spirit. And a primary way that we do that is by knowing scripture and passing that on to others. Proverbs 14.1 says, the wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. And so it's absolutely essential that mothers become wise because so much rides on that. I mean, mothers who are made in the image of God have the power to change the world of their children by the Holy Spirit. And it's only as they anchor their lives in the scriptures and pursue obedience to the Spirit and his will that they can find that direction for building their homes. We need the Spirit for work like that. But also, if you turn to, to John 16, we, we can't say everything that there is to say about the Spirit, even everything from this one passage, but we'll hit a couple more important elements here. In John 16, verse 7, Jesus in this same farewell discourse says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see him no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, 
But because you cannot bear them now, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So Jesus tells us that another thing that the spirit does is he convicts. And sometimes we think conviction just means that we feel guilty. But conviction in scripture is not the same as a guilty feeling. You know, at times we will be guilty and we'll have a guilty feeling that comes as a result of conviction. But conviction is just being convinced that something is true. Verse 9, it says the spirit works to give confidence that, that sin is indeed sinful and that Jesus is indeed righteous. That we become convinced that God is just and he judges. And so when we start to become cold and feel indifferent about our sin, our need is to cry out to the Holy Spirit to help. When we're speaking with someone who just desperately needs Jesus, but they can't see it, the need there is for the Holy Spirit to come and convince them of what's true. He's the only one who can really convince a heart that it needs Jesus. He's the only one who can convince us of of our sinfulness. He's the only one who can convince us that the message of the cross that seems like total foolishness from the outside is actually the wisdom of God. We're totally dependent on him. And so we need to be people who pray and fast and seek him and ask him to work because ultimately the real work of spreading the kingdom of God can't be done if the Holy Spirit doesn't do it. But when he does it, He draws people to himself. He gives them the gift of faith. He builds his church. He builds the kingdom. He brings about repentance from sin. So we need him. And I've got to believe that that today, just because his word is being opened, not because we're doing anything spectacular, but because we're opening his word and teaching it, I've got to believe that the spirit might be working to convict and draw some people to him today that maybe you feel this sense of your own sin and the weight of your failure. Maybe you sense that there's like this disconnect from God that you have to have remedied. Well, the remedy for that, that the Spirit will lead you to, because some of the work of the Spirit is to point us to Jesus, is that Jesus Christ went to the cross. He went and he died there. He was buried and he rose again. And he gives the offer that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The way that we are accepted by God isn't by the things that we do. It isn't by working our way there. It isn't by becoming religious. It isn't by joining this church or joining another church. It's by coming to an end of ourselves, recognizing our sinfulness, recognizing our need and our failure and that we can't solve the problem on our own, and then trusting in Christ turning from our sin and our unbelief and our selfishness and those other things that were ultimate to us and turning to believe that Jesus died for us, he was buried and he rose again. And when we receive that gift with simple faith, not not through our contributions, through our works, but just receive that as we cry out to him, he promises to receive all those who would come to him, to forgive everyone who trusts in his cross and accepts his righteousness as their own, And he offers that to you today. And so if you're sensing that God is drawing you, it's probably because he's drawing you. That's probably the work of his spirit. And I would encourage you to cry out to him to forgiveness for forgiveness. And he promises that he will give it to all of those who come to him on his terms. And as the spirit reminds us of Jesus and points us to Jesus, 
one of the external things it should be doing in our lives is it should be giving us peace. Again, back to John 14, verse 27, Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. For mothers and everyone else, I think there are a lot of reasons for us to be afraid for the future. And those reasons can change with with each season of life, and there can be lots of excuses for, for being afraid. But with the Spirit present with us, we don't have to live in fear. We can have real hope. And there should be a marked difference between the peace and hope that we have as Christians and the attempts at peace and hope that others are making who don't have the same eternal confidence that we have. If you don't know God at all, to a degree, you're trusting your circumstances to make you feel at peace. You think you could have peace, that once you have have enough money in the bank, once you have enough job security, once you have enough physical health, once you get a few things in place, that's where you'll get your peace. It's like your peace is dependent on the things that you produce. But any of us who've had those things, even for a short season, know that that's never enough. We'll always look for a little more security, a little more peace, a little more ease. But Jesus gives us a better promise. He promises that God's spirit is with us and in us. And because of that, he hasn't left us. Because of that, we can know we have a future. Because of that, we can be guided and understand what his word has to say. And because of that, we can have peace. Because circumstances will never be enough. We we constantly hear the message that you can find peace based on your circumstances, but that's always a flimsy peace. And Jesus gives his spirit so that we can have peace now. So let's respond to his spirit this morning. We, We do so by confessing the ways we fall short as he's convicted us of sin and righteousness and judgment. We do so by trusting again in what Jesus has done for us and then rejoicing in the relief that he's given us because of his gospel. So let's take a minute to quietly pray, confess our sins to him, and then I'll close. Father, we need the work of your spirit in our lives. Thank you that as a good and generous father who knows exactly what we need, you sent your son to die. He sent your spirit to convict us, to be with us, to comfort us, to teach us your word. Every need that we really have is met in the plan that you have. So forgive us for not trusting you to be good to us. And Jesus, as the Spirit points us to you, he reminds us of your righteousness. He reminds us of the forgiveness that you offer us. We can't fathom your righteousness. We can't fathom the depth of your perfection. 
We're overwhelmed by the majesty of your gospel plan and the way that you brought us to yourself. We're astounded that, that your sacrifice on that cross can wash us clean. It's an amazing plan, but your spirit's leading us to, to trust you and to believe it. And spirit, we pray that you would lead us to continual repentance and faithfulness. That you'd give us this peace and you'd keep us from despair. Give us your grace so that we can see our sin clearly. So we can come to you again and again renouncing our selfishness, hating our sin and hoping fully in the grace of Jesus. Forgive us for the ways that we haven't responded to your prompting, to your conviction, and for peace we've clung to our sin instead of clinging to you. We thank you for the mercy that's been given to us in the gospel. Thank you for giving us the gift of faith so that we could believe in what Jesus did for us. And as we believe that and as we confess our sins again, we pray that today you would give us that sense of relief from our failures, from our guilt as Christ has taken it, and from our fears because your perfect love has cast them out. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Christ calls us to new life. And, and even when we fall, he enables us to begin again under the forgiveness of his gospel. In Christ, we are forgiven. And just like Jesus healed the afflicted, just like Jesus raised the dead, he also forgives our sins for real and gives us new life. Isaiah 55 says this in verse 6, says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts.